Ask Me Care podcast series. I'm your host, Johanna Ruddy. On this weekly series, Dr. Drossman and I are frequently joined by guests as we discuss disorders of gut-brain interaction, their diagnosis and treatment, and of course, patient-provider communication skills, trainings, and tips that are helpful for patients and doctors alike. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interaction. Welcome everyone to this month's discussion of an, uh, of, of an article from Neurogastroenterology and Motility Journal. My name is Dr. Purna Kashyap. I'm a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. We're very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Douglas Drossman to discuss his recent review published in the current issue of Neurogastroenterology and Motility Journal. Dr. Drossman does not need an introduction. He's one of the first gastroenterologists to develop the field of brain-gut interactions and neurogastroenterology in terms of research, patient care, and education. Dr. Drossman is a professor emeritus of medicine and psychiatry in gastroenterology at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, where he founded and co-directed the Center for Functional Gastrointestinal and Motility Disorders. In addition to leadership positions in all major national societies in our field, he has served on three committees of the Institute of Medicine, uh, Committee on Gulf War and Health, responsible for gastrointestinal disorders. Another major contribution by Dr. Rossman to our field is the Rome Foundation, which, he, which has helped advance the diagnosis and management of disease of gut-brain interaction. He was the founder and president of the Rome Foundation and now serves as president emeritus and chief of operations. Welcome Dr. Rossman and congratulations on the recent publication of your paper, what elements in the physician-patient relationship contribute to patient satisfaction? Development of a short-form PPR patient version questionnaire. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's dive straight in. Um, can you provide us some background on motivation for developing this study, evaluating patient factors in the physician-patient relationship that lead to their satisfaction with care? And why do you think this was so important? Thank you for that. You know, over the years, um, I've done a lot of research and teaching, but my career is, has a, is evolving into teaching and studying about patient-centered care and how to improve the patient-doctor relationship. You know, the reality is over the last few decades, we have less time to spend with patients. I think we're losing the art of medicine, uh, physical examination, technology is replacing clinical observation. And we're spending more and more time on documentation and certification. And I think patients are becoming increasingly dissatisfied. So I've done a lot of uh, work recently training physicians on how to communicate better. And that's what led to this study. Um, uh, I think um, we, we in, back in 2018, we conducted a workshop for GI faculty at Johns Hopkins and what we found was that as a result of that workshop, the patients were noting that the doctors were providing higher scores of satisfaction. So we were actually asked to go back and do a, a more advanced workshop. And what we realized that this might be an opportunity to do some research. So what we really wanna do is in addition to the training, we wanna get some research and so we thought this would be an opportunity 
And I had previously developed some research questionnaires like a satisfaction with, with care scale uh, and with the physician-patient relationship scale. So we ended up doing a study of the patients who were seeing the physicians who we were doing the advanced training with. So we had the opportunity to understand how their patients thought about their doctors after the training. So that's, that's the background. Uh, you want me to tell you about the study design? Uh, yeah, so you know, if you can briefly tell us about the methods and the study design uh, for developing the study. Sure. Well, the authors on this paper are myself, and then from Johns Hopkins is Ellen Stein and Anne-Marie O'Brien, and Johanna Ruddy, who works with me as executive director of the Rome Foundation, and Oli Carlson. So we were the investigators, and what we did is we set up a program to give the, the patients uh, uh, of the faculty people a set of questionnaires. And these questionnaires included uh, demographic and medical factors like their diagnosis. This questionnaire I developed about the patient's satisfaction with care. The patient version of a physician-patient questionnaire which rates what items they like about their physician that makes them have a good relationship. And then we also gave them what's called the GSRS, which is a symptom rating scale, and the PHQ-4, which measures anxiety and depression. And so we use these items to look at the correlation between what patients thought were important in the physician-patient relationship and their satisfaction with care. In other words, what were the elements that the patients saw in the doctor that allowed them to be satisfied with the care they received? We also did some exploratory factor analysis and we did linear regression to determine which items would predict satisfaction. And using this, we actually developed a shorter form questionnaire. We can get into how we can use that later. So that's the design of the study. Great. And so, if, you know, based on that, if you can tell us your key findings, um, and then uh, how did you use the study to develop the new questionnaire uh, as a part of that? Sure. So the, the, this was a patient group, but uh, they were two-thirds women, middle-aged. They were a well-educated group, about 60% were college-educated, and about 73% were Caucasian. About one-third had DGBI and about two thirds had organic disease like GERD and ulcerative colitis and the like. And actually this population probably as a result of the nature of the doctors who were seeing them in our training, 83% were satisfied with the care they were receiving. And now we kind of drilled down on what the elements were that made that satisfaction. So the correlation in the paper indicated that the top items that correlated, correlated with satisfaction was, first of all, someone I like. The patients had to like the doctor. Second, knows about my case. They'd have to feel that the doctor was knowledgeable, accepts my feelings and point of view, is available to me, and is responsive to my questions and concerns. There are several more items, but if you look at those top five, I think a doctor can get a sense of what they need to do, 
for the patient to be satisfied. The negative correlations, that is what was associated with dissatisfaction, no surprise, the doctor seemed rushed. He seemed not concerned. He, I say he, he or she was rude. And the doctor interrupted and didn't do a physical exam, uh, which is interesting because uh, I think these days we're doing less and less phys physical exams, but doctors uh, actually, uh, patients actually find that beneficial. Then we did a factor analysis to show five clinical factors that would predict 63% of the variance. Now remember, the factor would be combining several items and the domains included their level of competence, the patient's sense of connection with the doctor, their professionalism, the consideration of the doctors and their tendency to refer out when they didn't know what was going on. So using this item, we then did a 12 item short form physician patient relation form. The original item was 32 items and that might be too cumbersome in clinical practice. But by going through this study, we could validate it and have a shorter form, which was 12 of the items. And that could be used in any clinical setting. One thing which um, you mentioned early on was that majority of patients were well-educated. Um, do you think that has something to do in terms of the factors that you identified in terms of response? Uh, in other words, if, if the same study was to be done in patients who were not at a high level of education, would you expect the same factors to also show up? And in a different width context, some of these factors tend to be um, different in the Western countries compared to some of the developing countries where the overall volume is high and patients tend to be more deferential to their physicians, um, you, you know, and they may not be as well informed um, as they are as, as some of our patients uh, in, in the Western culture. Do you think excellent. any of that have an effect? Excellent, excellent questions. The, the, the questionnaire is only as good as the nature of the population that's being studied. A white, well-educated population will be very different than in a, a third world country uh, where, as you said, there's more deference toward the physicians. In fact, in, in the, the, the countries, I, I, I think of China, uh, India, places where a doctor might see a patient hundred patients in a day. There's just no time for this. And so these are elements that were based on this population. But I do believe that there are some elements which would obviously have to be tested in those countries that, are that would be considered generic. For instance, being professional, being considerate of the patient. I think that crosses all cultures and populations, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think I think while while patients are differential, they also um, respond well to empathy from the physician. Then you know it's that's not always based on the amount of time spent. It's often based on on the amount of listening somebody does in the short amount of time that they spend with the patient. Yeah, you raise a good point because when we do our training programs, a lot of the the feedback, some of the responses is, "Well, who has time to do this? I have to see twenty patients a day." 
I don't have time to communicate like that. And my answer to that is the skills that we're trying to teach, the generic skills transcend time. If you only have 20 minutes for a patient, then take the 20 minutes of the patient. But you still have to provide empathy, validate their concerns, be respectful, and you can do it in a small amount of time. It's not what you do, it's how you're doing it that makes the difference. And, and I think you know we, we all do this in, in our practice to some extent. I think, I think that you hear the clock ticking and you feel like you're gonna run out of time when you know, in reality, you don't run out of time. I mean, I think uh, it's, it's just a fear that, that you will not be able to finish your day. Um, and I think that, that, that perception is sensed by the patients often because they feel like you're in a rush when neither may be true. It's all about perception, I guess, on both sides. Yeah, and you can can get caught in a vicious cycle. If you're feeling rushed and you're not coming across to the patient as well, the patient knows it. And then they they respond back in a negative way and you just want to get out of the room. But if you like the patient and you're providing the empathy and and the validation of their symptoms, the patient gets to like you and you may spend even more time. You, You don't always think about the time when you're engaged on a particular problem that's really fascinating to work with and you're communicating well with the patient. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, so as I see, you know, you went from a longer questionnaire and you were able to narrow it down. In terms of applying it in clinical practice, how do you think this would play out in terms of applying it in clinical practice? Do you think every system would have to do a pilot or is it something that can be universally applied? Yeah, I don't have the answer to that question. Um, I think that this this questionnaire can be translated and validated and looked at in other other countries and other other clinical settings, like a city hospital, for example, might be a valuable thing to do and to to validate it against what very simply you would do the questionnaire and you would compare it to the patients to the say the satisfaction questionnaire. The way we'd like to use it is that it can, the 12 item can be used um, to evaluate GI fellows. You know, you can you can give it to to uh, the patients that the fellows are seeing in clinic, or even doctors who want to self-evaluate. And then we can also use it in training programs. I'm interested in taking this questionnaire, giving it to their patients before the doctors go into the the training program. We have all day workshops. And then we give it to the patients, a group of patients seen by the doctor after they go through the training to be able to try to validate the training program. So I think these are kind of ways in which we can use this scale. But I think self-assessment is an important one. We all want to know how we're doing. And, and this can tell us then. Well, I, I completely agree because you know, I, it, what brings to mind is that most hospital systems now have some sort of a physician evaluation form, which was developed by big companies, would send these out as third-party vendors to patients, which may not be that closely aligned with what we do in practice, because yeah. there is a generic form which is sent out across different uh, uh, industries, uh, where you just tweak the question and the same question which is sent out all of them, and and we we really need something like these when we're trying to do assessment both self-assessment and also assessment of practices uh, because it's more relevant to our patient population. 
Oh, yes. And I want to add to that. Um, you know, you're all familiar with the, um, the hospital evaluation forms uh, that are used, um, HCAPs, they're called. Um, and these are questionnaires to look at patient satisfaction, but they're not developed by the patients. They are developed for reimbursement purposes. And they ask questions like, did the patient get in an inpatient setting? Did they get their medication on time? Uh, was the room clean? Did the nurses come on demand? And that satisfaction is not what patients are looking for. Our satisfaction scale was done by focus groups of what patients thought were important. And so you have to be careful when you look at patient satisfaction. Now, another thing you could do if you wanted to do a study is you could simply ask the question on a five or seven point scale, how satisfied are the care, was the care you received in this clinical setting? That's a reasonable dependent measure for assessing whether the patient is doing well with the training. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, what, so what are your plans in terms of building on this work? Um, have you thought of what the next steps would be? Well, I, I think, as I said, I'm looking to do this when, we, when, when COVID finally gets to the point where we can actually go places and do training sessions like we did at Hopkins. I'd like to go to a medical center, uh, do a training program. I do this with my co-facilitator, um, Johanna Ruddy from the Rome Foundation. And we do workshops where we do role play and teaching programs. And I want to get a look, get a, get to see if the doctors benefit enough that we see satisfaction with their care by giving it to patients before and after. I think I want to open the door for other people to start doing it. Uh, you know, in the November issue of Gastroenterology, our Rome working team was on communication skills, and we provided a lot of guidelines on how to improve that relationship. I'd love to see other programs, people interested in patient-centered care, to try to do that. Absolutely, I think I think you know this is something uh, which, um, like you said, once COVID hits, this would be great uh, for for different programs to benefit from this approach because I think this is one thing which most patient-centered areas are looking for is to how to improve that relationship because it, you know a lot of the problems that we face in terms of non-compliance, patient's loss to follow up, all trigger from this lack of good physician-patient relationship to start with. Right. Uh, with that, um, any parting thoughts on this? Uh, no, I want to thank you for this. I like the idea of, of supplementing the journal article with, you know, the, the author's thoughts around the article. So that I think I appreciate that opportunity. No, oh, it's great. I mean, we are, we are glad we were able to take time away to do this and in, in, in for important areas like this, which are important for the entire field in general, it's good to get the author's perspective, uh, which can't be covered in, in scientific articles altogether. So nice. I'd thank you again, Dr. Rossman, for this excellent discussion and the helpful pointers. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in again on another uh, installment of the podcast next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. Find more helpful tips, 
downloadable resources, videos, and more on our website at theromefoundation.org. Look under the resource tab for our patient Q&A videos, gut feelings blog, articles, and more. Have you purchased your copy of Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Provider Relationship book yet? Be sure to find that on the Rome Foundation website and place your order, or find us on Amazon as well. We look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Gut Feelings. This has been your host, Jill